You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, The Songs of Jesus, Singing the Story of Christ. In this series, we see how Christmas carols and Advent songs are rooted in the rich promises of God, speaking to the deepest longings of the soul and equipping us to bring all we are to God, particularly as we gather together. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt, and truth like an undergarment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, soldier, and peace be with you. It's great to see you guys. Uh, my name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks to all the folks visiting for the kids' choir. Uh, happy that we, did, you know, this is five years in a row that no fist fights have broke out, no vomit from the stage, uh, no free runners. So, good day. And uh, it's just wild seeing. If you have gray hair, you know it, but it's just a surprise. Kids grow up, right? And the the little ones are bigger. And uh, so, has there been too much good news this morning? Can I give you guys one more bit of good news? Is that okay? One more. Um, and, you know, last week when we, we announced that matching fund, I will say at best it was a tepid response. And I get it. I get it. I get where we are. I know our people. But uh, I want to give us some permission to get a little bit excited and a little bit uh, uh, joyful. It's okay. No one's going to throw you out. Uh, so yesterday we had our first ever affordable Christmas day. And so if you have no idea, <laughs> yeah, well, that's not the good news yet. Um, I mean, it's good that we had it, right? So uh, if you guys aren't familiar with what the Affordable Christmas is. It's something that our other Sojourn churches have done before. A Seed to Oaks is an organization that we've partnered with for several years that's helping us grow and caring for our neighborhood, meeting the needs of our neighborhood. And so what, what we wanted to do was find a way to offer people a dignified Christmas shopping experience who would need some help. Maybe they couldn't afford to just go to Walmart or Target and get uh, presents for their kids, but at the same time, we didn't want to just give them away. We wanted them to have some skin in the game. And so as a church, you all donated uh, $6,000 worth of Christmas presents, which is a lot of Christmas presents. And what that equated to, we then were able to sell those yesterday, 90% off the retail price. And uh, Julie Cordray, I don't know if Julie's in this service or the next one, uh, she put in the lion's share of the effort here, leading this forward, and she wrote a, just a quick little summary of what yesterday was like, and I wanted to read it for you guys. It just, it just got me really excited. She said, the first annual affordable Christmas store was a great success. Over $6,000 worth of items you donated made it possible to provide 60 children with brand new gifts and stocking stuffers at 90% off the retail price. 
Over 30 volunteers came together to welcome our guests, provide refreshments and childcare, wrap gifts, stock the store, and help walk families through their experience. In the safe, loving space, many shoppers opened up about their lives and made meaningful connections with volunteers, accepting invitations to pray or be contacted in the future. Thanks be to God and thank you donors and volunteers for giving your time, talents, and possessions to demonstrate Christ's love in such a tangible way. So uh, at our church, at least in terms of like finances, has usually for the 10 years or so we've been around, it's kind of been the little engine that could, or the widow's might, if you read the Bible. You know, we're doing the best we can and God's blessed. And, you know, budget-wise, we're in surplus. Like, it's just kind of shocking if you've been here for a while to see where we're at financially. And so to see, you know, a $20,000 matching fund happened and then a $25,000 grant coming in from the community at large and then seeing you guys responding with generosity, over $6,000 given away to really empower folks in our neighborhood, um, I'm just overwhelmed with pride for you guys. I'm proud to be one of your pastors and I'm thankful for you. So great job and I just couldn't be more thankful. So... Uh, so this week I wanted to start with a, a little bit of a history lesson. Um, the year's 1865, and that was a tumultuous year in our nation's history. Uh, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, civil war had ravaged the country. And I want you to imagine that you're in Nashville, Tennessee. So far enough north to, to kind of feel like the north, and far enough south to still feel like the south. Just imagine... The, the strangeness of living in a place like that during that time in our nation's history. Three men came together in that city. John Ogden, the Reverend Erastus Milo Kravath, which if there was ever a preacher's name, you ever wish that was your name? Erastus Milo Kravath and Reverend Edward P. Smith met with a union general named Clinton B. Fisk. So you have three clergy meeting with a former union general in Nashville. There are two problems that they wanted to address. The first one was now that the war is over, we had all of these empty union barracks, just big buildings. What are we going to do with these buildings, particularly right in the heart of Nashville, Tennessee? That was the first problem. What are we going to do with empty union barracks? Uh, the barracks that we're talking about in particular are near present-day Union Station, if you've ever been to Nashville or visited that famous place. The second problem was how can we educate and empower men and women who traded their physical chains and slavery for social and economic ones now? You understand what I mean by that? They were freed legally, but there's all of the cultural baggage. So practically, just because slaves had been set free didn't mean suddenly they could go into a college in Nashville and get an education, or that there would be a school where they would be welcomed. So these three men convinced General Fisk to provide the barracks to be a new school that would, not primarily for former enslaved men and women, but one that would welcome them and be open to them. Um, so these empty barracks, they convinced him to turn into a new school, which they aptly named Fisk University in honor of General Fisk. The first students in their class ranged, the youngest was seven years old, and the oldest was 70 years old. They had in common 
you know, the experience of slavery and incredible poverty, but, but more so, and this is from reading a, a lot of history, there was a shared hunger for knowledge and a longing for change. Um, here's a photo from the early days. This is a picture of some of the first classes there at Fisk University. So this is, you know, late 1800s. I want you to, some of you have tried starting stuff, and it's hard whenever you start something. I want you to try to imagine starting a school, open it, run it, and fund it, that's welcoming to former slaves that's in the South, meeting in former army barracks. The founder said the school would measure itself, this is a quote now, by the highest standards, not of Negro education, but of American education at its finest. The motivation from Fisk University was to be a model university for the whole country. It opened to all people. The school was officially incorporated on August 22, 1867. I just want to let you speculate historically for a second. How many donors do you think lined up to get behind Fisk University? Not many. How many, and I'm not saying there's bad people, but, but how many of the kind of the white middle Tennessee people were like, yeah, I'll send my kid to that school with all the former slaves in the army barracks? It wasn't a wait list. One denomination, the American Missionary Association, offered them some funding. Y'all familiar with the American Missionary Association? <laughs> right? It's not like a booming denomination got behind them. But there was, that's, as far as we can tell, that's the only group that really said, okay, we'll back this work. Enrollment was almost entirely formerly enslaved men and women. So the school basically opened on hard times. I, I want you to try and feel the desperation staff faculty, and students felt. Clearly a worthy idea, a necessary idea. But it was a primarily black school in the South with men and women who were enslaved a few years prior trying to start a school in old army barracks in 1865. What do you think that felt like? What kind of pressures do you think they experienced? Many of us have been in tight spots before. I don't want to minimize any of the experiences you all have. I think this qualifies as a really tight spot. The school's treasurer was a white man, somewhat ironically named George White. Uh, he had an uncomfortable idea. The school had a choir. And he came to the choir and he said to them, the country needs to hear your songs. The songs they sang were not the songs that most of the white people in the country were singing in their churches. Here's, it's amazing how these records have been preserved. Um, one of the original, or the second generation members of the choir described it this way. They said, this was a lady, she said, these songs were associated with slavery and the dark past. So the songs they were singing were songs that had been birthed in the fields under oppression, songs of hope crying out to the Lord to rescue. They were songs 
birthed from suffering. And in that way, this choir member continued, they were sacred to our parents. These were our songs, is what she was saying, from a shameful part of our past that we weren't quite sure we wanted to share. And <laughs> can you just imagine someone be like, hey, you know those songs that you sang about your oppressors and your suffering and all this stuff that the white people did to you? You should go sing those songs to white people. I just want you to try to imagine if it's even possible for us, a group of former enslaved people being told by a white person to go and sing the songs birthed from their slavery to predominantly white audiences and charge them for it to fund a university primarily for formerly enslaved people meeting in Union Army Barracks in Nashville, Tennessee. If someone came to you with that business plan, would you be like, sounds like a winner? Well, they decided to go for it, and thus the Fisk University Jubilee Singers were born. Here's a shot of them. This was the first choir. Fisk University, the Jubilee Singers. Jubilee, why that name? Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee, which was commanded by the Lord. The year debts were released, captives set free, property returned. That's a band name. That's a band name. On October 6, 1871, they set out on tour. The songs that they sang preserved generations of songs that now we call the Negro spiritual song. An entire genre of music was preserved from this radical effort. There's a song that everyone in this room knows because of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. It's a song that even the hardest atheist could sing along to, would tap their foot to, and clap along. It's crossed the globe. It's been recorded countless times. It's not only helped bring economic liberation to Fisk University, it's also empowered millions to announce the liberating power of the gospel from Satan, sin, and death. So from the, the depths of social isolation, economic oppression, and desperate circumstances, these men and women cross the country singing, Go, tell it on the mountain. When you hear that song, when you've sang that song, did you know where it came from? Would you have guessed that this is where it came from? That those were the circumstances that birthed this song? But, but is that not the way of the gospel itself? Taking what's unexpected to do, to do what's unimaginable. You could drive to Fisk University today Still going, still offering fantastic education. The plan, the plan worked. This is the way of the gospel, taking what's unexpected to do what's unimaginable. As unexpected as Jesus was for many, as unexpected as his appearance in your own life likely was, it was the plan. Did you notice how strange this passage from Isaiah began? Just the first few words, out of the stump of David's family. How do you get a stump? Anybody? You have to cut a tree down. Nobody looks at New Fields and is like, look at all the stumps. That thing is thriving. <laughs> right? A tree was cut down. A stump is a reminder of what was. And depending on the circumstances, a reminder of what could have been. 
There was this rich promise given to David, and what was left of that promise was a stump. Because you probably know the stories. David was a murderer. David committed adultery. Invading nations, exile, a stump. And what would come from that stump? Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. (laughs) I love the Bible, you guys. A shoot will grow. A shoot. That's a little baby bit. Try to imagine a single blade of grass that finds its way through a crack in the asphalt. Or maybe in your driveway, you see one blade of grass coming out the edge. Do you look at that blade of grass and be like, oh boy, this driveway's in trouble. Is anybody scared by a little shoot of grass? A shoot is an afterthought. A shoot is not impressive or intimidating. Isaiah is telling us God would do something unexpected with something unimpressive. Something special about this shoot, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. It's hard to see a spirit. It's not obvious. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Like all seeds, the power of the shoot would be hard to see. Nobody looks at an acorn and is intimidated by it. If you plant that thing under your driveway and give it some time, the acorn wins. The power of the shoot was on the inside, something about his presence, but it's not what we would expect. Verses 3 through 4, he will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance, nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. So what will this shoot do? He will obey. Not something, the power of obedience. He will do what he's supposed to do. He will judge fairly. He will give justice to the poor. Just so, when you dream of a powerful ruler, who's excited for 2020, amen? Nobody, right? Nobody. But whoever your guy or girl is that you're dreaming about, Do you sit back and say, you know what? When our person's in office, they're going to bring justice to the poor. Is that what we fantasize about or hope for in our rulers? How unexpected, how sideways that God would say, when the ruler comes, he's going to bring justice to the poor. That's one of the ways you'll know. How unassuming, how different. And yet, verse 4 is utterly terrifying. The earth will shake at the force of his word. One breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. This little shoot has the power to shake the earth. One breath destroys the wicked. Can you not see this power at work in a song like Go Tell It on the Mountain? You see what, I mean, what a perfect illustration of what the power of the gospel is. Something unexpected, something unassuming, something not obvious. Through the transforming power of the gospel, the earth has shaken. And have you ever, I'm so pro-eternal salvation, you guys, I couldn't be more pro it. I'm, I'm a big fan of it, and I want everybody to have it. I think churches like ours, we sometimes neglect what the gospel does right here, today, and now 
too. I mean, have you just sat back and thought about what has Christianity done to the world? What has been unleashed in the name of Jesus? Slaves have been freed. It's funded desperate universities. Secured eternal salvation, brought justice to the poor. Nothing in the history of the world has relieved more suffering or elevated the lives of human beings more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it starts so unassuming with a baby being born in a field. So, practically, for some of us, if you find yourself somewhere desperate this morning, and I know some of you really do find yourself somewhere desperate this morning, I want you to know you're in good company. God showing up in desperate situations, in unexpected, unimpressive ways, this is the story of God. This is the power of God. Unexpected, unimpressive solutions to impossible situations do. Think about what the Jubilee Singers did. They went out and sang. And let me remind you of just one verse. Down in a lowly manger, our humble Christ was born. And God sent us salvation, that blessed Christmas morn. Let's just try to be honest for a minute. Is this how we would pick the restoration of all things? The healing of the universe. The reconciling of all of God's children. A lowly manger. A humble Christ was born. A baby. Would you pick a baby? And it means that God sent us salvation. Isaiah, thankfully this is in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you that you can take home. Isaiah gives us just these radical pictures of what this all means, what the shoot will do when his power shakes the earth. You can go read verses 6 through 9 of Isaiah chapter 11, and you just get these wild images like a lion laying with a lamb a cow playing with a bear, babies playing with cobras. If you have a baby, that's, someone say that's scary, amen? Yeah. Right? I don't want my baby playing with a cobra. But it's a picture of life as it should be, free from violence and division. It's a picture of life free from fear. Nothing will be hurt or destroyed. So verse 10, he says, in that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. One of the richest promises of Christmas that has the power to anchor our souls is the promise that there are no more impossible, hopeless situations. If you're in Christ, you know how the story ends. Regardless of what happens in this life, we are under Christ's banner of salvation. Nations will rally to him. We will live in a glorious place because we will live with Jesus. So, so most practically for us, this means that despite your circumstances, whatever you're facing, you have power 
to rejoice. You have power to sing. With our eyes fixed into that future place, we sing now and bring tomorrow in today. It blows my mind that Fisk University still exists. Again, we could get in cars. We could, we, maybe if we had an old church bus, we could go all drive down together. People looked to a future promise and they worked to bring it to reality today. They sang as an act of hope and they rejoiced. Some of you, if you hear me say, you have power to rejoice despite your circumstances. I am in no way advocating for pie-in-the-sky Christianity. You all know what I mean by that? The one was like, hey, how are you doing? It's like, I'm great. Just so blessed, brother. How was today? Today is the best day of my life. Better than yesterday. God's so good. All the t-. You know what I mean? Where we just have to like, put on this mask that everything is good and everything is fine. And because we're Christians, we have, that's not at all what I'm saying. The Fisk Jubilee singers, they didn't go sing to pretend they were not desperate. They didn't just put on a happy face and be like, no, everything's fine. Our university's great. They went out and sang because they were desperate. What if we became a people, you know, like our goal was to make the room shake when we gathered because we wanted to experience our future home so badly. Not because we were like, we're so on fire for Jesus right now, but because we really wanted to be. What if we sang as a way of trying to get to that place or arouse those feelings to, to take hold of those promises, to make the joy real? What if we went from this place, we became a people looking intently for the hand of God at work, desperate to find some evidence that he's here and he's moving. Sometimes we sing not because we feel like it, but because we want to feel like it. Sometimes I read the Bible not because I believe it's true, but because I'm scared it's not and I want to believe it's true. Sometimes I pray not because I hear the voice of God, but because I'm desperate to hear the voice of God. It's like some of y'all crazy people go to the gym, right? I wish I did. I don't. I'll just be honest. I don't go to the gym. One day I will. But if you only go to the gym when you feel like it, you, you get what you're going to get out of that. Some of what we're doing here is we're rehearsing our future hope and we're trying to anchor ourselves and convince ourselves that what's waiting for us out there is real now. And so we sing full-hearted, loud. We do stuff like, at some point, we're just going to do an exercise together where we all go like this together. And you find out, I'm not going to make you do it right now. I'm just letting you know what's coming. So you can come every week and get nervous. Is this going to be the week? One, and listen, y'all, it's going to, this, I'm off my manuscript right now, all right? So we're in uncomfortable territory together. You know, the Bible commands you to raise your hands and worship the Lord. I mean, it's a verse and we're, we're a Bible church. And listen, what, what do you guys do when you get excited and happy and you're in your house or something awesome happens? Or you know what I did when Bobby sent me a text message and he said, we just got a check for $25,000. I didn't even know this was happening. There's somebody, there's a grant writer in Louisville who's helping our church and they're just out there scouring for money. I didn't even know this was happening. I dropped my phone and I just went, whoa, woo. What would you do if I handed you 25 grand right now? And I'm not saying this is because we don't love Jesus, that we act that way in our church. I'm not saying it's, it's because for so many of us, church has been a place where, you know, children are seen and not heard. This is a respectful place. 
We don't want to be a distraction, right? It's a culture that we've created. And I'm saying I think that culture is getting in the way of us experiencing the real promises of Jesus. And we, that's on us, okay? So I'm not correcting as much as saying, hey, this is a place that we want to go together. We want to make this happen together. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's weird because most of us don't, don't know that we're supposed to or we're allowed to do that in church. But if you look at your life, you do it somewhere, Whether, even if it's just in your car alone. So my, my point is, sometimes when we gather to rehearse these promises, we're trying to take hold of something that we know is true, but maybe we don't know it's true right now. We want to know it's true and feel that it's true more than we do in this present moment. Or we want people around us to know. Because y'all, if we could weigh the amount of suffering that's happened in this room in the last week, I think it would, it would entirely shock us to know how much pain we are carrying as a church week in and week out. Some of you have had a great week, and your brothers and sisters have not. They need you to help carry that. And on the flip side of this now, everyone's like, oh my gosh, are we going charismatic? Are we going crazy? No, we're not doing that. Because here, <laughs> one person was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> we're going to find a middle ground. Sojourn has been great at overcorrecting over the years. And so here's, here's what I mean. One of the, one of the problems, so I picked on, on the Baptists, and I'm going to pick on the charismatics. Again, we're off script here, so I got time. I got seven minutes. We're good. Um, the Baptists, the Pres- we're more Presbyterian. We're kind of like a Presbyterian Baptist mix, if you want to know what's going on theologically with this church. And for us, it's been like theological precision has been, that's the word, that's when you know God's present. Well, for the charismatic Pentecostally stuff, it's like if something weird happens or wild or something where it's like, oh my gosh, it's unbelievable, something miraculous happens, that's where it is. So over here, it becomes all about the next high, the next spiritual high, getting on fire for Jesus. If I'm not on fire for Jesus, you know, I'm backslidden. If something miraculous hasn't happened, God's not there. And we create this system where instead of being bored over here, we become utterly exhausted looking for the next big thing, bigger, faster, more spectacular. And I'm thankful for the spectacular stuff, but most of life is pretty regular and pretty ordinary. The vast majority of Jesus's life was breakfast, work, dinner, sleep. Even traveling with the disciples. What? You ever wonder why you don't have more of his days? Well, some of that is how long would it take you to walk 30 miles? What did they talk about? You think they talked about each other's sandals? Those are sweet sandals, man. I know, I got them from whatever. Like, most of it was just really really normal. And you go to Acts 2. What are they doing? It's like, well, they got together and they read the Bible and they prayed and they ate food. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not all like they cast fire from heaven and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So we want to bring more of our full expression without going down this road of thinking it's all got to be extreme and flashy. God most often is found in ordinary, unexpected, unimpressive places. He doesn't say in that day out of the chute will come a lightning bolt dragon with fire from its breath and Jesus riding on him, shouting to, you know what I mean? It's like a little baby, little baby plant will grow. Messiah comes as a baby. He grows up and spends 30 years in obscurity. I know we are drawn to the flashy, the big platform, the places of power, but we need to become a people accustomed to looking closer at the unexpected and the unimpressive. 
some of the clearest places that you will find the presence of God, you will see the face of God, you will see God at work is on the margins, the places that are overlooked, the places where there's desperation, the small evidences of grace, because there you will be reminded that God is at work. He loves using foolish things to display his power. It's just a clear reminder, hey, this is my church. That's God saying that to be clear, not me, okay? This is God's church, this is God's work, and he will make it, ha- he'll make it so, however he chooses to. And I, I love that we get a concrete picture of this to anchor our faith week in and week out. He doesn't say, if you want to remember the power of my salvation, let's all run laps and scream at each other with flags or something. Or like, let's all jump in ice baths and come out and shave our heads and write, I love Jesus on my chest. Or, you know, all the crazy stuff that some of us had to do at youth camp. Any, just me? Nobody else did that kind of stuff? This could be me. This could be group therapy just for me. So I, w- I want you to think about the shoot that Isaiah promised, cosmic eternal salvation, the kingdom of God, justice to the poor. How does Jesus say to rehearse this and to remember this? He takes a loaf of bread. How many of us would look at a loaf of bread and be like, that's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe? A loaf of bread, you guys. He thanks God for it. Sees even this bread as a gift. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Something ordinary now is a gateway into the most glorious mystery and power that the world has ever known. Whenever you eat this bread, remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine, which I know there's, to my Baptist brothers and sisters, I know we got weird alcohol problems, but, you know, you got verses. Uh, (laughs) This was an everyday drink for them. So let's just get off what it means today. I'm just saying it was an everyday drink for them. This would be like Jesus taking a cup of water today. This was an everyday, normal drink. And he said, this normal, ordinary thing. We don't get the vintage. It wasn't some high-end, fancy bottle of wine that had been laid to rest for 50. It wasn't a Bordeaux. It was just a Middle Eastern table wine. And he says, whenever you drink this, remember, this is what seals your new relationship with God. It's my blood shed for you. And the point is, is now... And two of the most ordinary realities in our daily life, Jesus says these things are now gateways into the eternal mystery that is my love for you, my death for you, my resurrection, and the secured promise that all things will be made new again. You see how unimpressive and ordinary it is? But God flips that on his head to do something incredibly powerful and miraculous. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice, Wine has a piece of twine wrapped around it. You can use whichever you'd like. There'll be gluten-free elements to my left, and there'll be stations in the back. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come celebrate our hope together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook, or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.